am Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and I am immortal. For a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast to our knowledge that goes through the 1986 classic movie Highlander, minute by minute-ish, kind of scene by scene. I'm your host Rob Daniel. And as always, I am absolutely thrilled to say that I am joined by my resplendent co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. Uh, hello, it's lovely as always to be here. And I'm thrilled that you're on, Rob. And I'm even more thrilled because we have returning for the second episode, but actually the fourth episode in all that has appeared on, Mr. Ian Bird. Hello, thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for um, agreeing to return <laughs> on the Saturday morning that you are uh, recording this. Yes, it's Halloween weekend, isn't it? It is. Right and early on Halloween weekend. Yes. And uh, I believe that you just pointed out to your son that you and he could be watching John Carpenter's Halloween right now if we hadn't dragged you onto a podcast and <laughs> he just looked evil at you. Yes, he's, he's not having that. <laughs> It's very rare for him to get the living room all to himself. And this has been, he, got, he gets up incredibly early like most 12-year-olds. And uh, yeah, he's been downstairs watching Simpsons for almost two hours now. Well, could you... Sterling parenting. <laughs> could you tell him that his sacrifice is greatly appreciated? <laughs> he doesn't understand the meaning of sacrifice. <laughs> oh, it's a simple word. <laughs> Sorry, that's too, too early in the morning for Elton John references. Yeah, is there any? Yeah, that's what. But I'm sure that Elton was on like a long list of people to do the songs for Highlander, so it kind of fits in. There is no evidence that Elton John was ever approached to do Highlander, <laughs> but Marillion were. <laughs> I'm just going to throw out trivia while there's silence. So, what we're talking about today? Well, actually, we're kind of going a bit rogue on this one because normally we huh? do kind of like a minute or um, a scene, but we're doing two scenes. In this particular episode, we're doing the introduction of the Kurgan in the present day when he's driving into New York. And then we're going to do the follow-up scene when he checks into the flop house and begins to practice with his sword. And that ends in a very, very memorable way with the appearance of Candy. The, uh, the time code for this is 23 minutes 43 to 26 minutes 9. You've always got my back. Thank you very much. Um... <laughs> And the reason why we're doing this is, well, one, because the scenes kind of go well together, but also because, uh, so Ian and myself have been talking about Highlander for about 30 years and um, <laughs> with Rob for about six years. And there's a particular line that said in the moment with Candy that we just had to have Ian on the podcast for to talk about because we've said it so many times in our life. <laughs> <laughs> so you will forgive us the indulgence the indulgence so, yes. <laughs> to throw back to the last episode yes quoting uh, film dialogue in lieu of actual conversation <laughs> how, yeah. how many times do you think the uh, the words 
that we won't say now because we'll keep our powder dry. That that, that quotation has passed between you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I would say it goes in. It this... goes into dozens. Um, I would say over the years. But it's just such a good line to use that everyone always knows what it is. Well, Ian and I do. I think our (laughs) friends just... This is one of the best things about this film because this film has got violence in it and it's it's really well cast. It looks gorgeous. But um, this is a film that you can see is right. Okay, a writer wrote this. Someone who really wanted to make sure that if I'm going to bother to have my characters talking, everything they say is going to be quotable. Cool. So, yes. And as I said, we're going to be talking about a couple of scenes. So the first one is of the Kurgan driving into New York. And again, this is a it's a good example of how I think the film convinced an audience that this was all shot in New York, mm. because not only do you get a shot of New York, but it's a helicopter shot of New York. And in the 80s, helicopter shots were kind of the preserve of films because they were so expensive. And these are good helicopter shots. And it's a night shot as well. So you get New York lit up and it just looks amazing and it's um, straight in there as well um we've talked about well you guys have talked an awful lot about the visual matches on scenes but this is one where there's a um a soundtrack match isn't there the, the sort of like the yelping thrilled sh- cries of the prisoners in the uh, in the police station merge into the sound of the radio that the kurgan's listening to and it's kind of like that's the connective tissue between the two scenes so it kind of like one bleeds into the other really well on like a, a soundtrack rather than a visual basis which is terrific But then you've got his enormous car. It's not it's not quite a hearse, is it? But it's like this this giant American Cadillac-style thing that's just careering down the highway. But it's all on his own as well, isn't he? He's like he's the he's driving in on an empty New York road. I think so. Yeah, which is which looks striking as well. Is he presumably driving in from Jersey? Yes. Yes, I always thought that's what he was doing because they're talking about Jersey, aren't they? On the on the radio. No, they're talking about, about no, they're talking about Madison Square Garden, aren't they? Yeah, because... Because it's a man who said it with the sprinklers. Yeah. That's right. Which is a line I never really understood. I could never quite make out what on earth she's saying. Garage and water from the sprinklers. That's right. It's, um, but yes, I always got the impression that he was driving in from Jersey. I think it's one of those things where if he's not the only car on the highway, then he's the only car going in, in that direction. direction. Yeah. And it's wonderful, so, isn't it? Because when he closes in, it's completely dark. But his face is lit up like a skull by the dashboard light, which is a sure another meatloaf quote. But it is is <laughs> such a great shot. It's like this is how you establish villainy. Because the first shot that you get of the Kurgan is of that like silver skull bracelet mm. as he's going to put the uh, put the tape in uh, for the music that is that starts off being non diegetic and then becomes diegetic. <laughs> I love the idea that he is this this hell warrior from beyond time. And the, the, the terrible arcane music he listens to that evokes this disastrous life story of his is a Queen song. It's like, I feel it's not Queen he's listening to. <laughs> but it is Queen, though, because um, it's called Gimme the Prize, which is just such a coincidence that he's listening to a song called Gimme the Prize when... Uh, yeah, when he wants the prize. Especially when he gets to the end of the song and he realises he's ultimately going to be losing this. Yes, that's right. Yes, because Yeah, that song's got a massive spoiler for his life. <laughs> I know. It's wow. Like, wow.
The villain's going to lose? I love the idea of him listening to Queen. It's like, it would be even better if you put it on and it was an Elton John tape he was listening to. Yeah. <laughs> Your song or something. <laughs> Reach out for the but, healing hands. Reach out for the healing hands. Well, or, uh, um, or Total Eclipse of the Heart, even. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if it was an Elton John, it would be I'm Still Standing, because, of course, Russell Mulcahy, he directed the video for that. Oh, that, that would be term. incredible. That would be an awesome. That would be very, very good. <laughs> yeah, but um, is it called The Prize or is it called Gimme The Prize? Gimme The Prize. It's called Gimme The Prize, which yeah, is, right, yeah. it, it was written to be the Kurgan's theme. Yeah, and it's the only song I read that Queen didn't really like from the soundtrack because they felt it was too heavy metal. And I don't know, it's like kind of, it's very rocky, but I'd never thought of it as being different to their sound. But uh, but it is a really, really good song. It's yeah. so, it just really, really kicks in. I it? do and love that album. It is a sign of the fact that I have no taste in music, but a kind of magic album is, <laughs> I've listened to, I'm sure, more than any other album in the history of music. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, actually, this song... I love Don't, don't Lose Your Head, because it's going to come later. Oh, yeah, don't right. lose your head. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. And repeat. That's such, a, that's such an 80s example of um, white guy rap. <laughs> yes. I love you know, the idea that the Queen had seen the film and had been inspired to write this. And then, and then obviously, you know, it's like Queen's writing the soundtrack and them having to go back through and vet Queen songs to make sure there aren't any spoilers in there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but we listened to Give Me the Pride, didn't we? Uh, because we were all in a car on Monday and <laughs> it was on a playlist that we had put together. And it was great when it came on because it has that really ace kind of Brian guitar May lick wow opening. <laughs> Yes, I think um, a guitar lick is better than the noise I just mentioned. <laughs> and it's such a great opening to the song. It's such a great song. So yeah, I'm not sure what they were talking about when they said they didn't like it very much. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant audio mix. You've gone from the shriek of the uh, police station into that guitar lick, but with also the um, the radio announcer. Also left a man's decapitated body lying on the floor next to his own severed head. It also left a man's decapitated body It's just—it's wonderful. The, the the dialogue is fantastic, and it all bleeds together perfectly, just as this guy is just driving down the highway. But it also leads into, um, sorry, what you've just said also goes into one of the most quotable lines as exactly. well. Exactly, a head that at this time has no name. I know his name. I know. His I know name. his name. <laughs> this is such an intimidating <laughs> line. And also like, like the idea that the Kurgan's one of us who's talking back to the radio because he's getting grumpy about what the person who's chatting to Jeremy Vine is saying or something. Oh, I thought... That's a straw man argument. Like a certain amount of um, <laughs> self-satisfaction that it's like, I know his name. <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> Take la, 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 Take that, Sally Traffic. I think, yeah, I should probably take a moment just to shout out uh, to Peter Pennell, who's the sound editor for Highlander. Oh, good call. Because, yeah, good as you shout. say... The, uh, the 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 blend between the kind of the police station cheering into the uh, the the opening licks of the uh, of the Queen song. Um, also, correct me if I'm wrong. We never actually see the New York skyline behind the Kurgan while he's driving. It's always a separate shot. Isn't he driving which, down which, by a river or something? Isn't he? Yeah, which suggests to me, like I I'm assuming it was shot in New York, but it didn't. Not necessarily. 
Mm. Oh, it is because I look. I look for that. Yeah, you get the New York skyline in the very wide shot. So of course that doesn't have to be Clancy Brown driving the car. But when he's driving, I look for that to see is he is he now in London? But there are those American road signs um, that obviously could never be counterfeited. <laughs> well, I think it would be quite quite a deal to put those up and like kind of uh, they they seem it seems pretty authentic. So I think they would have snatched that when they were there. Rather than like, you know, yeah, kind of um, yeah, rip the English signs out of the road. Presumably <laughs> driving down the wrong side of the road would also be a bit of a no-no. Oh, yeah, there is that as well, isn't there? Yes, and it's also driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> Excuse me! <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what happens, Ian, when you are talking to two people who don't drive. <laughs> So, yeah, other than which, obviously, the Kurgan is known for his impeccable. The, uh, the 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 Kurgan is known for his impeccable road etiquette. You think that's how they lampshaded it? That actually he's driving on the right side of the road for being in England in order to establish that he's a villainous character driving on the wrong side of the road in America. That actually works really well. Yeah. In conclusion, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I've gone cross-eyed as well. <laughs> if anyone knows if it was actually him driving on an American road or an English road, then please let us know. I think it's American, but as Ian has like, yeah, now sent us both cross-eyed. <laughs> we, this just needs to be, yeah, cleared up as soon as possible. <laughs> Here's a question: Where did the Kurgan, or when did the Kurgan learn to drive? And does the Kurgan have a driving license? <laughs> I presume, I don't know, because it's one of those things where it would be easier to have a driving license. So if you're stopped, you can just show your license. But then again, is the Kurgan, he would just be able to buy one. This is like the um, wonderful scene in Anno Dracula we were talking about the other week, though, isn't it? Remember the cutout scene where uh, it's, it's Victorian era Dracula and he's transfixed with the idea of a car and he goes off and he's driving around like Mr. Toad in one of the first automobiles. I like the idea that he's just, even though he's he's not like stuck in the age that he grew up in, he's adopted all this new technology at the same time. Yes, of course he'd be driving a car. Be good. <laughs> but would he be legally driving it or not? That's the, uh, I think he would have bought himself a counterfeit license. I think he just kills anybody who pulls him over. <laughs> but, uh, and actually, he's driving okay at that point because he's like, you know, he's just a bit tired. He just wants to get to the flop house and, uh, you know, and crash. Which leads me to the next question uh, about the flop house. When did the Kurgan learn to write? What? <laughs> I think that the Kurgan. Well, that's the thing is that the Kurgan's not thick. No, <laughs> um, no, no. Because, we, but just in terms of like, he would have been. He was born on the steppes of Russia umpty ump years ago. I was born in Essex. <laughs> I still learned to <laughs> I was write. Born, I was born in Northamptonshire. I mean, yes, I was 28 when I learned to write, but um, I still did it. This is your step shaming I, here, Mr. Wallace. That's what you're doing. Yes. Yeah, you need to step up. <laughs> I also learned puns while I was in Northamptonshire, and uh, and then I escaped and I spread that to the rest of the country. But this is a really good point because he's established as being a barbarian. And when, um, obviously, um, Sean Connery's talking about him, it's always in those... It's always in those terms, you know, he's just a barbarian, he's uncivilised. The Kurgans were an ancient people from the steppes of Russia. For amusement, they tossed children into pits with hungry dogs to fight for meat. But um, he doesn't mean he's thick. He's actually smart and he carries himself with a certain amount of um, nuance. So when he's signing into the flop house, he's wearing his leather jacket over one shoulder, like it's like a business suit and he's signing in. And he's carrying a briefcase. And he's, mm. he's, he's not like... 
a, a slavering idiot. He's he's just been around a lot. He just happens to dress like a Halloween character. Well, I know he's got better handwriting than I do. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice handwriting. Um, and there's an interesting point that you said, Ian, about the name that he chooses to sign in with. Well, it's a very 80s horror movie name, isn't it? So his name's Victor Kruger, which makes him the second uh, most famous Kruger in 80s horror cinema. Yeah, which is really, I mean, I, I love the fact that he gives himself the name Victor, <laughs> because it's so sure that he's going to win. <laughs> My name is Betacuck Kruger. <laughs> That's right. But Kruger, yeah, I think is a reference to Freddy Kruger. But you made a really good point that if it was slightly tweaked, it would make much more sense for the character. Well, I looked it up because it's like, okay, Kruger, that's, that's, it did feel like every bad guy was called Kruger. So, okay, what is the er derivation of it? And it just means innkeeper. But Krieger is, because I think Kruger is, is Dutch, Danish, but Krieger was obviously the German name, uh, which gives us, you know, ultimately Blitzkrieg and whatnot. And so Krieger would mean you were a soldier. So it seemed like, oh, okay, you were this close to having an original name that also meant who you were as a character. I guess nominative determinism's yeah. not big on the steps of Russia. Because <laughs> it could have been Victor Warrior. Victor like, Warrior. Oh, been... My name <laughs> is Victor Warrior. <laughs> I'm Max Steele. <laughs> I can't believe that the police want to question me. I've got such an inconspicuous name. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Warrior, Mr. Victor Warrior. <laughs> And Russell Nash, this guy, we're not sure about that name either. <laughs> yeah, they, but, this, uh, guy's he can't, this guy can't be a killer, he's gay. With a name like Russell, he has to be gay. I'll tell you what happened, Russell. You went down to the garage for a blowjob. You just didn't want to pay for it. Huh. You are sick. But this guy... <laughs> and again, he does listen to Freddie Mercury. He says, no, it's, actually, I take that all back entirely. Yeah, he should have been called <laughs> Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Victor Mercury, that would be good. <laughs> we were talking in the previous episode about um, Connor's eyes and sort of, you know, betraying the, uh, as, you, as Ian called it wonderfully, the thousand-year stare. Um, and then compare them with the Kurgan's eyes in this, you know, pale blue, just utterly dead. Oh, but I love that bit. You're absolutely right. He, he looks so fantastic. And he doesn't speak when he's signing in either. You just get that mm. flicker when a uh, flop house guy says, I'm going to have to hit you for 20 in advance. And you just see him go, mm -hmm, I'm not paying in advance. <laughs> a bit of him is yuppie. He knows that he's being hit up as a rube. Okay, Mr. Victor Kruger, room 315. And I'm going to hit you for 20 in advance. See, I really like the fact that you said that, Ian, that um, because... He looks genuinely quite hurt. Gonna <laughs> have to it, pay in advance. As if, as if the flophouse guy doesn't trust him. And it's like, <laughs> but I'm so trustworthy. And it's really, it's just. I've got a briefcase for Christ's sake. Seems, it seems really out of character for the Kurgan because in that one moment he looks a bit wounded and it's like, and you know, his pride has been hurt. I read it differently. I thought, I thought it was um, the hotel guy's use of the word hit. I th <laughs> um, that like and and the Kurgan's eyes just kind of flicker. You know, I'd like to see you try. <laughs> oh, I always think. No, I thought it was like the point that yeah, he's being he isn't being trusted. It's like I don't have to hit you up for twenty. And it's like hmm. and because he does look a bit wounded in that moment. And I always I just that's such a nice little touch by Clancy Brown, who has yeah. to be said oh. so many things to say about him in this one. But one. He has such great cranial architecture. I mean, <laughs> he looks incredible. Oh, yeah. Rob, always talking about the cranial architecture. I'm getting, I'm getting a bit worried, <laughs> to be honest. 
Well, as a bald man, I always look at other bald men and go, yes, you are fighting the bald, the bald cause very, very well. He has a wonderful gnome. <laughs> and, but also, it's really interesting in this scene because, of course, Clancy Brown wanted to play the character or thought it would be interesting to play the character as more of a refined gent. He's someone who you know, likes the good things in life. Whereas, of course, in the film, he isn't that, and he goes to flop houses and stuff. But he is coded as so heavily the Terminator, particularly in this scene, and there's another scene that's also in the flop house. The way that he's dressing in you know, the heavy-duty cargo pants and that heavy leather jacket, that is, that is the costume that Arnold Schwarzenegger wears. I mean, it's so... At the time, it was like, my God, he's just the Terminator. They've kind of copied the Terminator. Oh, I don't... I don't know, you know, because he's got that long, greasy ponytail and his face is covered in scars. It's and when he's in the when he's in his room playing with his sword, he's barefoot. And it's almost like he's like 80s dancer. It's there's I know what you mean. He's 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 utter killing machine and he's so taciturn in this. It lends itself to that reading as well. But Oh, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I like the idea that this is this. He is a barbarian who is out of time. But it, that doesn't mean to say he's not spent a thousand years accruing all sorts of experience. If he'd done it as a, like a, that cultured, that cultured reading, it might have come out a bit Dracula, don't you think? I think it would have done. But I think in terms of the costuming, and there's also a shot later when he leaves the flop house and it's a low angle shot that follows him back that is directly a shot from the Terminator. Yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah um, you're right, there's more going on there. But just in terms of his look, it's like that. He looks like the Terminator. And of course, the Terminator also goes to flop houses to stay hidden um, and yeah, stays in that same sort of establishment. But uh, can I, um, I just want to give a quick shout out to John Cassidy, who plays the, uh, the guy behind the desk, and to Prince Howell, who plays the drunk. Um, Prince Hal's only got the uh, got the <laughs> one credit to his name. He's got, I'm on his IMDb page. He's got the one credit on his filmography. John Cassidy is a, uh, by what I can tell, a British actor because he's got lots of sort of Jeeves and Worcester and Agatha Christie, and um, he's just done his first film. I mean, he's in he's in various of the Pink Panther movies. He's in really? uh, he's in Curse of the Pink Panther. And Trail of the Pink Panther, both in which as third mafia boss. Right. Okay. So he was a good face to have in a group shot, but he you know, necessarily didn't have a line, or you know, or he'd have one or two or something. Trail of the Pink Panther is the one that was stitched together, isn't it? After Peter Sellers had died, Curse of the Pink Panther is the one with Diane Cannon. Is Roberto Benigni in that as well? Does he play his son or something? And they're going. That's son of the Pink Panther. Oh yes, of course it would be. <laughs> That's the other famous um, 80s French character, Connor McLeod <laughs> and Inspector Clouseau. And you mentioned Herbert Lom last time as well, which is very nice. <laughs> um, well, John Cassidy j- has just done apparently his first film since 1996. It came out last year. It's a film called Shuttlecock. And, it's, uh, and also appearing in it is Lambert Wilson. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the other great French Lambert actor. So, um, <laughs> see, what's interesting here is that the last time that we've seen the Kurgan, he has made deals with Murdoch and yeah, has that clan, and it suggests that he is using the mortals to get where he needs to be. Remember our agreement, Murdoch. The boy 
is mine. Whereas that's not the case with the rest of the film. And I wondered if, if that was like a budget constraint or if it could be read that he's been around so long that he can just do all this on his own now. I think he could always do it on his own. I just think it was a way of him, that was an opportunity. I, I, I never really read it that he was using other people because I think he's, the, all of these people are egotists and they quickly realise that they don't have time for humans. And I don't, I don't know, I never really registered with me when I was watching it. He's well, not I a team player, is he? It's quite interesting, though, that he would... He's not, but he will use but he will use people because they are his pawns. I always read that um, in the Highlands section, that he was, yeah, he was just saying, it is easier for me if I use these ants to get what I want, so or, like, you know, to help me get what I want. Um, and it's like, well... Yeah, wouldn't you always do that? I mean, it's uh, wouldn't you always use every single advantage? Because I don't know. It's it's one of those things where the Kurgan isn't particularly noble, but then he does always play within the rules, which makes him quite an unusual villain for the eighties. I mean, there's no point where he kind of betrays. No, the that's rules, really cool. I like that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting way to do a villain. That yeah, he will always. He knows that. He's part of something that if he would step outside the rules of what they've got, then, well, what would happen to him? How would he be, how would he be punished? What would happen if he was to kill on holy ground? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure somebody does it in the series. Because we are going to talk at some point about, well, yeah, when we get to it, uh-huh, um, when Sean describes the rules of being an immortal and them all going for the prize and all the different things that are happening there where it's like, but what about this? What about this? What about this? That's going to be the Gremlins episode. Where it's like, but if you feed an immortal after midnight, does he come back as another immortal? <laughs> well, apparently, uh, I'm looking at the Highlander wiki. Apparently, immortals should instinctively know when ground is holy. And there are different readings of what happens if you do it. You know, apparently there's a bit I hear about, apparently the uh, the eruption of Vesuvius may have been caused by two immortals battling in the Temple of Apollo. Uh, but then apparently also happens in the series and nothing really, yeah, there's no real consequence. Is that because the TV series so, is an inferior waste of time, whereas we're talking about a, a really fantastic <laughs> seminal piece of work that stands on its own merits without need of... <laughs> I, think I like the dismissive hum. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I still have to watch an episode, but... Um, Don't have but to. It's one of those things where, yeah, well, if you're doing a Highlander pod, you should at least... Check it out just to see. Oh, well, it is, it is as bad as Highlander 2. And I presume we've just had another Ironside theme there. <laughs> but the... Um, and it could be one of those things like, yeah, when a vampire tries to enter a house into which it's not been invited, it feels pain. So if you try to kill someone on holy ground, then you will be struck by pain and just unable to no, do it. No, I like the idea that it's just... It is literally tradition. That it's just like, no, we don't do that. We don't have to do that. We're more powerful. Our strength isn't just inherent. It's who we are as, as a people as well. So we just don't fight on holy ground. I, I like the idea that it's it's like, nope, we don't have to do that. Well, that makes it much more interesting for the Kurgan, yeah, that, that it's just a rule that is on the honour system and he chooses to abide by it. Yeah, actually, that is a much more interesting reading if it then applies to the villain who never breaks that rule. Well, this is um, back to what we're talking about, about a barbarian again, isn't it? So I looked up barbarian. It's kind of, it's got the same, it has the same stem as barber. The, the reason why you were called a barbarian was just because you were hairy and therefore considered to be uncivilized because you were being addressed by a Roman um, who obviously was 
powdered and um, ungent and clean shaven. So it's like that's that's the defining character. Oh, you're a barbarian doesn't mean to say that you're a moron. It just means that you're hairy. Just means that you know you don't obey the dress code. Um, I think in Japan because there was also um, a time when they would call the Westerners a barbarian. And I think that was to do with their appetites, the fact that they would eat a lot more food. Well, it's a word that's changed, isn't it? It's it's yeah. become sort of like uh, a thug or a Neanderthal or whatever, but it, it, it just meant that you were uncivilised. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yes, that you wouldn't deny your appetites. Um, but I love the fact that it comes from the word barber. I would never have put those two together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this because it's like that means technically a barbarian is, is 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 it means the same word as it's the same word as beard. The translation is beard. So if so you're calling someone a barbarian, you're calling them a beard. Which talking to back to the um, the queer coding of the film, if someone called you a beard in this day and age, it's meaning something quite different from a, a rude and uncivilized barbarian. Yeah. Although there's also like another reading in terms of a hipster beard, which is, um, yeah, someone whose head you really want to have chopped off. But <laughs> but as you said, Ian... Well, I, um, I can't grow a beard, so... Yes, you can. Well, we all did during lockdown. Yes, <laughs> you also have a beard. <laughs> the, no, I have um, a ratty hillbilly beard. The best kind of beard. <laughs> that kind of, I went into the mountains and got weird beard. <laughs> <laughs> But as you said, Ian, the Kurgan also to show that he is um, a man who has a certain code, has a wonderful briefcase in which he keeps his sword, and it's just a it's just a really nice touch that is because it's a very very nice and it's obviously like a custom job as well, so someone would have had to have made it. They wonder did mm. he kill the person who made it afterwards to keep them silent? I think he's a craft. I think he's a craft. I think he made it himself. Oh, that's like a, yeah. He, he also knits. He's great. He makes his own clothes. Yeah. Cuts <laughs> his own hair. <laughs> he is a hipster. <laughs> the thing about the briefcase as well is it's very Day of the Jackal. Yes, definitely. It's that's absolutely true. That's really great. Cool. <laughs> I had one of those toys. I gave it to my kid. One of those little toy briefcases with the sniper rifle inside. That's a really good reading, Rob. So you're saying that he sees himself as an assassin, like a professional killer. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine maybe that's how he's made his money. He's clearly got a stack of it. He does. He has a thick <laughs> roll of 20s, doesn't he? So, yeah. I, I like the uh, the montage of him putting the sword together that's, you know, sort of intercut with him training with it. There's something ritualistic about it that I don't know you necessarily... I mean, does, does the Kurgan feel like a ritualistic person? Yeah, definitely. I love that scene. It's like stepping out. I think it is that whole... It's almost like flash dance. He's having his his moment alone, where he's sort of like you know enjoying his art as he he assembles his tools and takes time to breathe and, and, and be one with the moment. It's also that wonderful incidental music over that scene, where I think you were talking earlier that that would have been Michael Kamen doing incidental music, but it sounds like Queen. There's that um, reverberating metallic guitar that's kind of like crack rocheting up the tension in a very sort of like why so serious kind of way during that whole sequence. Mm. And it's an interesting point, yeah, that he is uh, practicing with a sword and then it's intercut with him assembling the sword, which is, um, I think you're right, Ian. I think there is something in Flashdance or one of those films where there's there's a really interesting point there in terms of when they got to set that day, 
they hadn't really planned out how to do this particular scene and didn't know what he was going to do with the sword. So Russell Mulcahy called Arlene Phillips, who I think had worked on the um, film as a choreographer. She was a choreographer for Hot Gossip, which was a dance troupe <laughs> during the 70s. She was also um, a choreographer for Annie, and she did another big film. Yeah, she was also the choreographer for Legend. So presumably she would have done the scene with Mia Sara when she turns into the evil version of herself and does that dance, or when she's like seduced by the dancer. So anyway, so she was a choreographer. So Russell Mulcahy said that he just called her and said, yeah, Arlene, can you just get down here really, really quickly? Because we need you to plan out some moves that he's going to do with his sword, which is why it does look like a performance. It, it, it doesn't look like a fight. It looks like a dance that he's doing. And just add something to the character, I think. The fact that he is so graceful with it. And as he said, he's not a barbarian. He's um, someone who has a really wonderful fluidity of movement when he's using his sword and seems that he's most comfortable when he's doing it. Oh, I really like that. There's one point, again, that Chris, when we had him on the episode a few episodes ago, he said, wouldn't it weaken the sword to have two different bits to it? And I always thought that as a kid. I thought, wouldn't that just fly off at some point? Yeah. It, doesn't, it seems to, uh, to click into place, but if you're banging it, wouldn't that kind of loosen the fastening? He should have it tucked down his, he should have it tucked down his coat like a normal person. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't trust myself to put it together. I would feel like mid-combat, the uh, the blade, the top of the blade is just going to fly off. what happened, right, in the first scene with Sean Connery when he goes to chop the table in half and the sword flew off and almost decapitated Sean for real. Um, we'll talk about that more when we get to it. Um, but I know why it's there, because of course the reason why it's there is that he's got this massive sword. What's even more impressive than that? The fact that he puts another sword onto it and he's got an even bigger sword. <laughs> Um, with more tiny little swords at the foot of the blade, the, uh, at the hilt. No, tiny little things flickering out. That is the one thing, that is the one thing I've seen. When he presses the button or whatever and the little flick blades come out, he blinks. <laughs> it's like... I made a note of that. It's concession you... to being a human. At last, the gathering. Do you think it's possible not to blink? To do that over and over again and not... I just don't think it is possible, is it? To uh, Well, to now they'd just remove it with CGI, wouldn't they? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say because that's a um, there's a scene from Sin City when is it Mio? Is she uh, the Japanese assassin character? When she chops someone's head off, you don't see the head coming off, but her face gets um, splashed with blood. The eyes were used from a different take because they don't blink. Oh, um, well, that's clever. So Robert Rodriguez was speaking to Tarantino and said, "Yeah, this is how we did that shot." Um, and Tarantino said, oh, see, that's the reason why I don't like all the digital filmmaking, because it's yeah, it's a cheat, right? And he said, well, you can look at it like that, or you can look at it as I have a character who doesn't blink when she gets her face sprayed with blood. <laughs> that's that's something to enhance the character in, in that moment. I think you're right, Rob. I think now they would have just put in eyes from a different shot, because he does blink, and it's like, that's the one thing he wouldn't blink. <laughs> he's so great in this film I love him in this film Clancy Brown is such a great actor he's cropping up I'm watching Star Wars Rebels with uh, the kids at the moment and he's in the background <laughs> his character design obviously is, is sounds like Clancy Brown but they've also made him look like Clancy Brown as well which is lovely but big overwhelming hulking monk Clancy Brown which is a great look as well have you talked about him being in Buckaroo Banzai? not yet because he plays one of um, 
uh, Buckaroo Banzai's um, cohorts. Uh, but in that, he's kind of like a well-meaning nerd who just happens to look like Clancy Brown. That's right. I mean, it is. He had a very, he had a very interesting eighties career. Um, Bad Boys, which is a Sean Penn kind of um, a juvenile prison movie, and he plays the heavy in that. But there's a really nice moment when I think it's when he writes an essay and then he illustrates it with this bird flying to freedom. And everyone starts laughing at him and he looks really, really wounded and storms out of the classroom mm. that he's in. And so there was always something about him that, yeah, he looks like a villain, but it just seemed that people just seemed to realise that there was, well, that he could do more. Sensitivity to yeah, it. Yeah, indeed. That, yeah. Well, he's got those big soulful eyes, hasn't he? He's got quite sensual lips as well. He's, 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 he's really striking looking. I remember him in uh, Blue Steel. Yes. Where basically they always they, doesn't he like have a perm in that and is always wearing woolen big fluffy woolen sweaters. It's like they've gone out of his gone out of their way to remove those solid elements of toxic masculinity that a lesser uh, director might dress him up in. Would well, you remember his name in that film? Is he Hunt Man or something? No, because he plays the goodie. He's he's called Nick Man. Nick Man. That's and, it. <laughs> the baddie played by Ron Silver is called Eugene Hunt. The it most is, dangerous name. Yes. It was a 90s <laughs> feminist reading of all the 80s cop movies. And for that reason... I need to watch that again. It's it's a film that leans very, very heavy on the symbolism. And uh, yes, the names. She's Megan Turner. <laughs> and the idea is that she's changing into something else and blah blah blah, blah. Um, but, uh, uh, well uh, anything for J- Jamie Lee Curtis she's absolutely everywhere at the moment isn't she we, like I say we, we've, we're taping this over Halloween weekend and the second the house is empty uh, my son and I are going to watch um, that 1978 classic <laughs> so uh, yeah she's absolutely everywhere I need to watch Knives Out again as well yeah she was so great in that wasn't she um, anything that Clancy Brown would be good in a Knives Out movie he would be wouldn't he um but yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, he's just one of of the greats. He's very well. But his voice as well. It's like he can play. Obviously, stick that kind of like iron rasp into his voice. But his voice is is deep and impressive. But it's it, it can also be quite soft. He's brilliant, Lex Luthor. He does lots of voice work, doesn't mm, he? That's right. And it's um. Do you remember that line from Frasier where oh, this is a, this is a cut this bit out but um they describe uh, daphne describes martin's voice as having that that lovely warm whiskey voice and it's like that he, he does have a very thick blanket reassuring timbre in his performance even when he's playing a centuries old barbarian warlord goodbye mcleod we will meet soon enough faux barbarian <laughs> or like um there's also in the point when he's doing the sword play there's a bit when he's really really twirling the sword and it almost has like a religiosity yeah. to it because he's staring heavenwards and he and he just that like dervish yeah, yeah and it's one of the yeah that's right yeah he's like a whirling dervish isn't he it's like absolutely brilliant um it's like a church of one that's mm. what i like about it, it, it it's like it, you can un- it doesn't need him to have some supernatural he, i think he does carry that's the subtlety of the performance in what he does you're going to have the the scene when he's in church and he can play the happy halloween ladies but at the same time he's just a little bit bored by all the pomp and circumstance of this this infant religion that's only two thousand years old yeah he cares about these helpless mortals of course he cares he died for our sins that shall be his undoing yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And also here, while we're talking about just what a wonderful physical presence he is, we're talking about two mm. scenes, actually three scenes, because you've got the car, um, the bit when he checks into the flop house, and now he's doing the sword play. And he has two lines of dialogue, right? He has, I know his name, and then the line of dialogue that we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, yeah, which is exactly the same as the beginning of the film when they're introducing McLeod, isn't it? Yes. When people talk, it's because they've got something to say. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I'm turning into a psycho killer lyric. <laughs> but yeah, and the rest of it is just done through, yeah, the physical performance, but also his eyes. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. He does have those amazing eyes. It's very much, the scene is very much the flip of um, the one we were just talking about, where it's, this is our, our madman time traveller character who's been put in a very mundane present-day setting, expected to play nice with normal human beings. Uh, and they just stand out and shriek lunatic in both scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But also, this is the kind of thing, because we never see Connor do anything like this with a sword, do we? we? We never see him practice with a sword, I don't think. And this is the kind of thing that you would expect, particularly during an 80s movie, that it's always the hero that shows how amazing he is and you get like a montage sequence or something. But here it's it's given over to the villain to uh, to show that there's more to him than just being a bruiser. No, but there is, because there is the equivalent scene, aren't they? When, when uh, McLeod goes back to his apartment, he, he goes off and he starts sharpening his, his sword. He, he gets his craftsman bit. He takes care of his weapon. Oh, yeah. When he's in his wonderful apartment. I suppose that would be, yeah, the equivalent, which is, but I can sharpen a sword, Ian. <laughs> but I can't do the twirl. Can you? <laughs> I say, yeah, well, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, we can. He... We b- we both know you've stood in your room with your katana, practicing your <laughs> practicing your stance. That's right. And I certainly couldn't do the bit in this scene, which I, I really hope that they would talk about it, or the Russell Mulcahy would talk about it on the audio commentary when he's spinning the sword and kind of bouncing it between his arms. That's great. And it's like, yeah. how are they doing that? Because can you just spin a sword if it's really, really well balanced and just do that with your arms? Because it looks like it's actually mounted on something that you can't see. Um, and I've always wondered how that was done because it's such a great moment and just shows that he is, yeah, he is very, very skilled at what he does and also has a taste for the theatrical in what he does as well. Yeah, yeah. Which goes back to the Joker. But anyway. <laughs> I guess um, is now time to talk about the arrival of the uh, wonderful Corrine Russell. Yes, and who does she play? Uh, Ian, over to you. <laughs> well, she's Candy. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course she is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was... So she was a page three girl, and she was a glamour model, and she was an actor. She was in... So she started off as a dancer and she was in, well, she was one of the Hills Angels. So so she was in the Benny Hill show. And it would be interesting to see if it, any of the younger listeners still know who that guy was. But um, yeah, uh, the Benny Hill show was very, very famous for the Hills Angels, which were basically... Ooh, back to Daphne. Yes, indeed. So back to Frasier. Um, uh, what's her name again? Jane Leaves. Yeah, so Jane Leaves was a Hills Angel. Um yeah, yeah. So Benny Hill was the kind of thing that you laughed at in the eighties when you only had three channels um, and <laughs> was the only thing on. Uh, not particularly funny, but I did like it as a kid. Um, 
But yeah, he had the Hills Angels, which were ladies that would be scantily clad and would run around after him and he would run away from them. Um, there's quite a dark thing I saw on TV about how they would audition to become a Hills Angel. Um, no. But we, we shan't go into that now. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, she was also in uh, the Kenny Everett show. Um as one of the sexy dancers, that was the kind of role that she was playing. It seemed as if she also had some small roles in sitcoms as well and stuff like that. So she'd probably have like, yeah, one or two lines. And she's in the You Shook Me All Night Long. She's in that video, the ACDC video. Uh, she is the main woman in that. And Absolute Beginners, uh, the David Bowie oh. film, she is the woman that dances on the typewriter. There's a massive... Oh. Yeah, yeah. And she's only at the very beginning of it, and and you never see her again. But there's a bit when she's on the typewriter, and it's a massive, massive prop. It's really quite impressive. The film itself stinks, but um, yeah, she's dancing on that, and then it's handed over uh, to David Bowie to dance on it for the rest of the scene. I've never seen Absolute Beginners. That scene is on is on YouTube, and yeah, I've seen I've seen that rubbish. scene. But <laughs> Julian it's, Temple, it's isn't rubbish. it? It was a. Is Julian Temple still alive? He's Juno Temple's right, father, yeah. isn't he? Um, Who's absolutely everywhere these days. You guys aren't watching Ted Lasso, are you? But she is fantastic in Ted Lasso. Um, oh, she's amazing. She's absolutely brilliant. Julian Temple is still alive. Because he did the, uh, the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, didn't he? The Sex Pistols film. Yeah. Which was very yeah. good. Uh, but yeah, Absolute Beginners was a huge flop. I think it came out in 85. And I think it was a bit of a last chance saloon at the time for the British film industry because they put a lot of money into it um, and I think it sunk the production company because it was such a flop yeah it's interminable <laughs> but but the main song like yeah the Bowie song is brilliant um, and the scene with the typewriter with the really really big prop that they're dancing on it's all right. <laughs> but yeah, she's in there. <laughs> 1940s Batman sequence. <laughs> yes, is that? Yeah. And yeah, but the thing is, I actually, there's, there's one other point. Um, yeah, so You Shook Me All Night Long is an ACDC video from the 80s. So the sexual politics are slightly <laughs> less evolved, <laughs> maybe, than they would be today. And there's a scene when she's riding a mechanical bull. <laughs> And apparently the spurs that she was wearing stabbed her a few times and... Nobody cared. Well, no, but one person cared and that was a roadie who came to her aid and they got married. Ah. Oh. Then they got divorced a bit later. Oh. <laughs> that sentence was a roller coaster. It was, it was. That sentence was as much of a roller coaster as the mechanical bull that she was riding. Uh, getting the obligatory Simpsons reference, the, the yogurt is also cursed. Take this object, but beware, it carries a terrible curse. Ooh, that's bad. But it comes with a free frogut. That's good. The frogut is also cursed. That's bad. But you get your choice of topping. That's good. The toppings contain potassium benzoate. That's bad. Can I go now? <laughs> well, there's... Um, and Rob, you said that there is... There's another thing that she did that directly kind of links her to um, Sean Connery. Yes. 
uh, insofar as uh, oh, no. she's one of the dancing silhouettes at the start of Octopussy. Which is fantastic shout out. <laughs> so good <laughs> and i will have to go back i mean yeah there's no way to tell which one she'd be but uh yes is she still alive yeah yeah um oh, good but the question that i have is is that her voice because i think that she's dubbed for this oh <laughs> well, good, what do it? you guys think <laughs> I just assumed it was her voice. And in my, in my head canon, of course, that's her voice. Yeah, can we, can we... Let's give her the benefit of the doubt and not take away Corrine Russell's voice in this. <laughs> like was done in everything during the 80s. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Hi, I'm Candy. I'm not the bad guy here. You can't shoot the messenger. All I'm saying is that's a very good American <laughs> accent and... Um, Women can't do American accents? Is that what no, you're saying? No, I'm just saying that the, that the way that she says it and the sound of the voice, it's like, I think there might be a little bit of dubbing going on there. Hi, I'm Candy. But I, would be I think so maybe we've all been acclimatised to... We've all been acclimatised to terrible accents in this film that if anything comes on that seems even halfway professional, it seems like it's Dustin Hoffmanian in its uh, accuracy. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think there's a difference between the way that Edward Wiley as Garfield says things and the way that Candy says things in the one line that she has. <laughs> Candy's, um, Candy doesn't even say things. <laughs> no, she says, I'm <laughs> she saying. Saying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but it's one... Do you notice the bruise on her upper arm? I did. Arm? I did notice that. There's like about three of them, aren't it's there? Really... Which is a really, really nice touch. Yeah, it's like... Like someone's grabbed her and held her, and it's like, oh god. <laughs> well, I say it's really, really nice touch. I hope the fact, I do hope that it was makeup. Oh god, must yeah. Um, but yeah, it has to be said. She has one thing to say, and it's just to introduce her character. But that's just one of the most memorable lines of of the entire film. And she looks so great when she's got that massive eighties hair. And it's like <laughs> striding into the room in this low shot, pointing up That's at her. That's right. Hi, I'm Ken. And she got like red fishnets or something on as well, or something like that. And it's like it is the guess the decade <laughs> archetypal schoolboy's image of a hooker during the 1980s is is Candy. It's like, yes, that's that's what that's what a lady of the night looks like. <laughs> Also, presumably the Kurgan had to dial reception in order to... Because obviously, you know, in the previous scene, uh, the, the proprietor's got the line, you know, broads or blow, just dial O. If there's anything you need, you know, broads or blow, just dial O, huh? So presumably the Kurgan did dial O, in which case I'd have been fascinated to hear what that conversation was like. <laughs> I got the impression from mm. that, and I could Not be wrong. Not exactly no blonde, are you? Like a girl, early 20s, blonde. Uh, I really can't stress blonde enough. Blonde. Not quite blonde, are you? <laughs> Which is, yes, of course, like, yeah, like American Psycho. So at the same time, across town, uptown, <laughs> Patrick Bateman would also be uh, yeah, hiring people with names like Candy. Um, but I always got the impression, there is no evidence for this at all, that because the guy saw the amount of money that the Kurgan had got, that yeah. he sent Candy to the Kurgan as like a present to say welcome to the neighborhood pal yeah you can stay here as long as you want because i can make some money from you um, I, that's how i read it as well uh, that yeah, the kurgan uh, doesn't have to ask for anything yeah yeah indeed also you know the shot of you know kurgan's face taking up half the screen with candy in the background uh it's a good shot but i wish it was split diopter so it's both in Why? focus yeah, I wish that they were both in focus. I don't know why. I just feel like that would might be the only shot in the film where I'm like, 
oh, maybe this could be even slightly better. You just wanted another look at Candy, didn't you? And <laughs> no court in the land will convict. But of course, it makes sense for the character because all attention, all focus is drawn to the immortal in the room and everybody else is secondary. Even Candy. Even sweet, sweet Candy. That's how I, yeah, indeed, that's how I saw yeah. it. I was thinking that because it's like, because you're right, Rob, it's such a extreme close-up of the Kurgan that you think that would be a split diopter shot and it's and it is like a conscious decision not to use that but i think that's the reason why it's like she's just just a little frippery that's here to entertain him for a bit and yeah, ultimately it doesn't really matter which is a real shame because other than which i think you know this seems basically pretty woman <laughs> <laughs> exactly oh, you God. think there's a whole other there's a whole other version of this film where they're going off and he takes her shopping and <laughs> oh that'd be really good <laughs> exactly. i really want that i would so watch that and there's a point when yeah the uh when the manager of the flop house starts to be a bit horrible to candy um he's the one that grabs the arm and the kurgan has to go and like you know basically be quite chivalrous and stand up for her um <laughs> and then towards the end obviously the kurgan's you know trying to give up on the game but keeps getting drawn back into it and then you pivot and you make connor the villain connor's connor's the one who's going to turn up and you know disrupt their happiness write it down yeah we could do a karate kid on this we could do a cobra kai on this and <laughs> and do the pivot so that daniel larusso is the baddie <laughs> <laughs> wow okay yes as ian said rob you have to write that down we have to have some fanfic that has the love interest between the Kurgan and Candy and they go out and actually he says, maybe I could, I could like this. Maybe this could be what. Well, here's to us. Yes, and um, and Connor through something accidental would then have to spoil that idea. That's got legs. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. That's got long legs just like Candy. <laughs> <laughs> So you have to write it down. I will add it to the list. <laughs> but then you were saying, of course, that this is the payoff line is the one that's also ripped from Goldfinger and another Sean Connery cameo. Oh, yes, because obviously uh, in this, the uh, the line, of course you are, is the same line that uh, Bond delivers after Pussy Galore yes. introduces herself in Goldfinger. Hello, this is Rob Wallace making a shameful correction during the editing process. It's not actually um, Pussy Galore that Bond says this line to in Goldfinger. He, in fact, says it to Plenty O'Toole in Diamonds Are Forever. I will sample both those for you now. My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Hi, I'm Plenty. But of course you are. Plenty O'Toole. Named after your father, perhaps? Yes, in an equally unproblematic relationship between characters. <laughs> yeah, there's more romance in Candy so and the Kurgan. So much more romance. So much more romance. Yes. So is there anything else to say, to say about the wonderful Corinne Russell? No, I think, no, she's she's great in what is, you know, a very, a very much a bit part. Uh, and yeah, has inspired much discussion uh, on this pod and off. Because yeah, she, uh, she uh, a perfect two-line exchange. It is, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. So she is, in the modern day, she's the woman with the second... Oh, no, Rachel. Rachel's got some lines of dialogue as well, hasn't she? That's all right, then. She is the third most loquacious female character in the, in the modern-day sequence of this film. Yeah, because the old lady at, on the car... Oh, she says, Daddy, help me, Daddy. <laughs> Daddy, help me, Daddy. Let's be charitable and say that's four words. Candy says, Hi, I'm Candy. I am candy. No, I, I am candy. Okay, it's four, four, four words each. Four words each. No, sorry. How, how are they doing on syllables? <laughs> it's not four words for candy, and I'm going to have to step in here. She uses a contraction. 
Because <laughs> she uses a contraction. Hi. I'm Candy. So, yes, okay. So she's the fourth most verbal female character in in the present day scene. But in terms of presence, I'd say she is third after Rachel, because Rachel has more to say. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's other women in this film. You've, you know, we've already... That's right. There's the woman who says, you can't keep me locked up here, asshole, in the, in the previous with, scene. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, right. uh, Excuse me. This, def- this film definitely passes the Bechdel excuse test. Excuse me. We had Kate. <laughs> we had Kate, played by the lovely Celia Imry and... We're talking about the modern day sequence. We're talking about the modern day the scenes. The film was a whole, because as much of it is set in the past as, as in the present. The defenseress <laughs> on a slightly wobbly chair. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I always wonder if the complete silence is the fact that the uh, connection's lost, or if it's just content. <laughs> or whether or not you've won the argument. No, never think that. I always think, is it content, <laughs> or is it a connection issue? So one little bit of trivia uh, is that um, Russell Mulcahy kept the sword and the briefcase after the film. And on oh. the audio commentary, he says, I then loaned it to uh, uh, to the hamburger place, Planet Whatever. <laughs> and gives a little bit of a laugh because he can't remember the name of Planet Hollywood. I wonder if it's... He got it back, I hope. Yeah, is, is Planet Hollywood still going? No. Didn't it go out of business? Yes, it went out of business. Oh, no, I'm, sure, I'm sure they've got one in London. They've got that one in London. I think that might be like the... Oh, oh no, no. It is permanently closed now. <laughs> they did have one. Yeah, they had one, I think, on Lower Regent Street, wasn't it? Or something like that. And yeah, that seemed to stay open for quite a while. But yeah, I think that was picked off by COVID if it didn't close before. Yeah, I think it might have... I think it's probably got like a dozen locations left around the world. <laughs> So it is the Scientology of burger joints. <laughs> I think that's how they're pitching themselves at this point. <laughs> the Scientology of burger joints. That's brilliant. Um, so I would I would imagine now that Russell Mulcahy actually has the sword back. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So is there anything else to say? Have we missed out anything in this wonderful sequence that we've talked about? That uh, yeah, it's such a great intro to the present day for the Kurgan. Um, such a good scene with the sword. There's so much going on in this, I think. Um, and yeah, just to say it again, Clancy Brown has a couple of lines of dialogue. I know <laughs> He's his such name. A great character. And of course, I know his name. <laughs> Go on in. One more time for the record. Of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. It's a good one indeed. Of course you are. So, on that note, do we have anything else to say about this particular sequence from the wonderful movie Highlander? I think that's it for me. I think it is. Coolio. Okay, then. Well, thank you for joining us, Ian. No, thank you very much for having me. And if anyone wanted to find your work on the internet, where should they go? Um, uh, I, I, I do have a website. I'm at www.mrcarapus.co.uk. And Mr. Wallace, the same question to you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace, and you can find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. And we have a sister podcast, which is called The Movie Robcast, and you can hear me and Rob talk about movies in general on that. And you can follow that on Twitter at Movie Robcast. And you can listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, it is at McLeod Time. 
And if you want to drop us an email, then you can do that at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. And if you want to rate and review us, then you can do that wherever you listen to your podcast. And it's always much appreciated. Thank you very much. And if you think a friend would like this, then please go and tell a friend. And have I missed anything out, Rob? No, I think I think that's pretty thorough. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Well, until next time, the only thing to say is... 